Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon uh, that's at patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons. They are Chris Belga, Michael Cross, Philip Barker, and Ricardo Alvarez. And if you do sign up, you get a weekly bonus episode where I kind of run over the stuff that I'm watching that week. And right now we have guests every week talking about each episode of The Mandalorian. So it's we have a lot of fun on there. And lastly, guys, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Well, I've got a new guest on the podcast today. I've got Dolan the Critic. Say hi. Hi. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Yeah, and and can you introduce yourself a little bit since this is your first time on the podcast? Uh, well, I um, I'm a film critic. I've been writing movie reviews semi professionally for the about five years now. Um, I just have such a love for film overall, and I'm glad to be here today. Great. Um, okay. Well, Dallin, thank you for coming on. Uh, I was reading your review on Wonder Woman today. Um, and so, yeah, people should go check out your blog, and we'll mention that at the end of the podcast, too. Uh, I So, my guests always pick the movie. So, what movie did you choose to talk about today? Uh, I chose to talk about the latest of the Planet of the Apes films that came out about four years now. Really, four years? Jeez. I know. Uh, so long and so yet so short. Um, and that is War for the Planet of the Apes. Yes. Yeah, so we've only covered, I went back and looked through my uh, catalog and we've covered Planet of the Apes like the original movie and that's it. So we haven't covered any of the new trilogy. And so I was really excited that you picked this one. You actually picked the final uh, installment of the trilogy. Like you said, War for the Planet of the Apes, which came out in 2017. So almost five years ago. Um, and yeah. It's, um, or four years ago, you're right. <laughs> Let me say it again. Um, and you picked the third installment, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, which came out in 2017. So yeah, four years ago. Um, I'm excited to talk about this one. I love this trilogy, and I'm shocked no one's picked it yet. So excited to dive in. Um, now, before we keep going, I do want to warn new listeners that this is not going to be spoiler-free. We are going to talk spoilers, so if you do want to go watch this first, you can. I rented it today on iTunes, but you can 
you know, rent it wherever, voodoo, wherever you rent movies, but, and come back and then join us. Uh, so I'm going to read the synopsis really quick, and then we'll kind of dive into your history with the movie and stuff like that. Uh, here we go. Caesar and his apes are forced into a deadly conflict with the army of humans led by the ruthless colonel, uh, played by Woody Harrelson. After the apes suffer unimaginable losses, Caesar wrestles with his darker instincts and begins his own mythic quest to avenge his kind. As the journey finally brings them face to face, Caesar and the colonel are pitted against each other in an epic battle that will determine the fate of both their species and the future of the planet. Well, it doesn't get much bigger in scope than that. <laughs> it's a pretty big plot, right? <laughs> Yeah. Although when you think about it, all these films, at least as far as this trilogy goes, um, they have really broad premises, but their stories are so small when you think about it. So character centric. I think you're absolutely right. It's like the fate of the planet is at stake, but yet the story itself feels so personal. Um, I'm assuming that when you saw this movie, you saw it in theaters. Uh, I did. And I actually have quite a funny story to tell. Oh, go um, for it. So before this movie came out, uh, I guess I knew nothing about the Planet of the Apes movies. Really? Uh, yeah. I hadn't seen the 68 film or any of its sequels. Um, I guess I saw the, the Tim Burton reboot, which what a way to start out the franchise was seeing that. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, I don't like these then. <laughs> and sorry, Jared, if you're listening, I know you do like that movie and eventually we will cover it. I'm not hating on you. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I actually didn't see any of the other films uh, until leading up to this. So about a few days before I saw this one in theaters, I watched the original 68 film, which I liked fine. Um, not one of my favorites. And I think a lot of it hinges on a twist that because of where I'm at in my generation was spoiled to me pretty much by the notion of having prequels um, and growing up during a time when those were coming out. Uh, still a very good movie with great discussions about, uh, faith and reasoning. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, but I actually didn't see, uh, the predecessors to war, uh, rise and dawn until I actually saw this movie in the theaters. I saw it oh, wow. uh, as a triple, uh, feature, if you will. Um, Dang, that's a lot of movies at once that you haven't is. seen yet. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the idea was that the this new film was coming out about two days uh, in advance for this event. And so I I did it uh, not only to have the opportunity to get a review out in advance. I was really my first opportunity to do that sort of thing, you know, kind of have a jump ahead on the rest of the world. But uh, I actually saw this I went to this event. Uh, it was my brother's birthday. So, uh, James, if you're listening, thank you. Uh, I'm eternally grateful that you allowed me to do this uh, on your birthday. <laughs> At the time, I felt like such a jerk for abandoning my brother, but uh, I'm glad I did this. And <laughs> part uh, about this whole thing is that you know when you think they're holding these uh, kind of events, that you know there'd be a big crowd, and I and I. Uh, remember everyone talking about the last two uh, apes movies. And so I, I figured there'd be a big turnout for this. Um, there was no turnout. Wow. <laughs> Only one. 
there to sit through all three of those movies. Oh my gosh. This this trilogy is underrated. I, I want I I was thinking about that a lot today that I think that these movies don't have maybe the spectacle that people are expecting when they see them. They're kind of I mean, you know, not to sound pretentious, but they're kind of thinking films, you know, it's they're broad concepts. And even though there are personal stories, but it's like, yes, there's some fighting, there's some explosions, but a lot of it is like just thinking really about what's going on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of themes and references to history, religion, you know, if you're into that, which I am, um, I you really enjoy these films, but I don't know that they're big popcorn crowd pleasers do you agree with that oh i completely agree in fact i refer to this trilogy of films as kind of like the anti-summer blockbuster pretty much i mean they're done so well but it's like kind of a hard sell for people like i love them but and some of my friends really love them but other friends are like oh yeah maybe i'll sit through that someday but they're not like eager to go out and see this so on some level, I'm not surprised that your theater wasn't packed, but to hear it was empty is kind of sad. <laughs> well, I expected that, oh, it's a triple feature. Obviously, people are not going to sit through movies they've already seen. So mm-hmm. I thought people were going to like sneak in right as the third one would be coming along. No, not true. And Gosh. the reason why I'll always remember being the only one there is that uh, you know, for these events, they kind of give out like collectibles. So uh, they handed out a poster, which I have. You can't see it, but I have hanging behind me on my wall. Um, nice. that poster. Uh, but they also had like a collectible ticket and they number these tickets. So I was one out of a hundred people that could have received one of those things. Oh, my gosh. I was the only one. So <laughs> I felt kind of special. Uh, yeah. But I also lonely. Uh, I would one is the loneliest number I mean (laughs) yeah I felt like Lego Batman sitting alone in his (laughs) theater in that that movie uh hindsight being 2020 I should have probably invited some people to go with me uh (laughs) but then again part of why I consider it such a special experience was because I was alone yeah Uh, well it's probably you know, because it is kind of a big plot and there's a lot going on, maybe it is better to watch alone. I don't know. I, I saw it in theaters. I saw all of them in theaters. Um, I wouldn't call myself like a huge Planet of the Apes fan. I think more so now than when I was younger. I remember my parents, you know, it being on the TV and them watching it a lot, like a lot of the old sequels more than the original And I know I saw the original at some point when I was a kid, but I didn't really go back and seriously watch them until I was an adult. And I love the original one a lot. Um, And I like this movie because, I mean, they all lead up to that movie, but this one really does. You know, it's where we start to finally see the the progression into the planet of the apes. and I don't think my theater was empty, but I don't remember it being crowded either. So I was somewhere in between. I didn't see it early. Um, I think I just, honestly, like before I did this podcast, I didn't really like always rush out to see movies <laughs> like the day they came out or anything like that. I would be like, unless it was like a really, really big one. And this one wasn't quite that big for me. 
Um, nowadays, I probably, you know, once we start getting back to theaters more, I probably would. But yeah, at the time, I just remember seeing it like on a Friday or Saturday night with some friends. And I don't remember it being too terribly eventful, but I did really, really enjoy it. Um, the next thing I want to do is run over a couple of quick facts that I had written down about the film. Uh, the first one being that according to Matt Reeves, the name of the group of rebelling humans are the Alpha and Omega, a reference to the bomb the mutants worshipped in Beneath the Planet of the Apes in 1970. Uh, the logo on their helmets and flag matches the original logo on the bomb. So I haven't, uh. yeah, I haven't seen all the Planet of the Apes sequels. Like I've seen them as in they were on in the background, but I haven't sat down and watched all of them. So I didn't get that reference, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I remember at the time I too tried watching all the sequels, but I started watching Beneath and I I, I couldn't get through it. <laughs> I, I just couldn't get through it. I may try to watch those movies at some point. Uh, and I saw bits and pieces uh, as they were airing uh, around the clock on cable networks. Uh, but from what I saw, I was like, eh, I'll just stick with the, the original of this trilogy of films for now. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Um, according to Matt Reeves, it was actually Woody Harrelson's idea to begin addressing Caesar by listing the military rivals of the past. Um, Wellington, Napoleon, Grant, Lee, Custer, and Sitting Bull, while noting that as an ape, Caesar would not know what he was talking about. Huh. And I thought that was cool. And he even says that at the end of it. He's like, you don't really know, you know your namesake. And it's like, I, I guess we forget, like, Caesar has the ability to know that, but because he's basically, like, been on the run this entire time, like, he hasn't had time to delve into, like, the meaning behind his name. So, that's a pretty cool fact. Uh, the last one that I had was that Matt Reeves said, point of view is one of the most important things that you use in a story. That's a quote. Adding that while this summer blockbuster whose spectacle is something different than superpowers or a grand action sequence... He said, our spectacle is that by the end of the movie, you're an ape. Viewers end up identifying with the emotional beats expressed by the apes. I say that's a very accurate statement on his part. Yeah. I mean, I found myself at the end of this movie thinking, yeah, I mean, I'm on their side. Um, I'm seeing everything from their point of view, although I think the apes in general in this trilogy, I mean, they're really a stand in for us and how... I think just how humanity evolved and how we end up replaying those same beats no matter what. I think it's a theme even in this one that by the end of the movie, I, I don't know that I necessarily think the apes are like, quote unquote, better than people um, because in some ways they're heading in the same direction. But certainly I'm seeing things from their perspective and they're definitely the heroes of the story by the end. Yeah, um, I remember watching the 68 film and thinking, okay, so this new trilogy, how does it fit in? I kind of wondered its place. And the other interesting experience that I had was trying to root for these apes to begin with, because the way that the original is framed, it's very much that you root for the the Charlton Heston character. I forget his name. Uh, but yeah. now the apes are sort of the heroes of the story. Uh, and I... At at first, it was kind of like, okay, how are they going to convince me to root for them? 
And then I, you know, sat through the first one and was like, okay, yep, totally get it. I'm on board. You know, let's, let's do this kind of thing. Yeah. I think, you know, at first when they announced this trilogy and and that it was going to be a prequel, I mean, honestly, I thought, where can this go? You know? Um, Oh, and and the name of the the character from the original was George Taylor. Um, Ah. But I, like you, I think of just Charlton Heston. (laughs) I mean, he's still (laughs) Charlton Heston that, you know, he couldn't have been anybody else. Right. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I thought, well, what more is there to say? I think because we got so used to everything being after the 1968 film being in the future, you know, this going back into the past. But yeah, by the first one that I saw in theaters, um, I was like, wow, this is like really good. I like where it's headed. And then by this movie, I mean, I just think it's like the perfect end cap that leads directly into that original film. Um and in the original film, you're right. You're, it's more from the perspective of George. But at the same time, by the end of the movie, there's, of course, that big twist. Um, spoilers <laughs> that they're on Earth um, and that it's all our fault. And so he has that moment of like, you know, he was angry at these apes the whole movie, but really like we brought this about or you, he can tell that we did. That, that, you know, it's the fall of mankind. And this movie, this trilogy, like really fleshes that idea out, improves that there's so much more story to tell. Um, and I just, I don't know. I love it. I, I, I don't know how I rank them, to be honest. Like that first one is so nostalgic for me, but the original, but I mean, these, this trilogy is why the second that the Batman was announced, I had like zero problems. Like I was like, whatever, it's going to be amazing. I know it is because these movies were... <laughs> Oh, definitely. I was yeah. the same case. Of, like, even when Robert Pattinson was was cast, it was like, hey, it has Matt Reeves' Matt Reeves's name on it. I'm sold. That's all I need. You know. Yeah, and he made the guess, last two movies, but I mean, I think they're even stronger than the first movie. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I guess Andy Serkis is going to be Alfred in that movie. So I'm like, yeah. okay, totally down. Yes. Um, and Andy Serkis in this film is truly incredible. I was watching some behind the scenes before we were recording. Um, and I don't know, because the movie is so seamless, it looks so beautiful. The effects in this movie are so great. I like almost forget (laughs) that it's people wearing suits with little dots all over their faces. I mean, that like, that's got to be tough to act around. I mean, Andy Serkis has a lot of practice, obviously, more than most actors. But it's just really incredible, like, how seamless that ends up being and the, the performances that the apes give in the movie. Oh, yeah. And the fact that they're able to ride horses in that equipment. Uh, yeah, most of the movie, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> like that. And the fact that the horses still behaved the way that they wanted them to during that movie, even with all the, the suits that they were wearing which i imagine because of all of the dots and markers that they have to put on the suit i imagine that's not comfortable so those suits don't both look for the actors no. and the the the, <laughs> the animals that they pulled that off is just amazing in and of itself yeah it's incredible that we're at a point with special effects that you can have these movies i mean by this movie there's you know it's predominantly apes um that we're following and you never feel like you're watching like a cartoon or, you know, the effects never distract from the movie at all. Um, oh, oh, go ahead. I'd go, I'd go one step further and say that they, they don't feel like effects. They feel like makeup. Like yes. I, I, I remember watching this movie, uh, which was the first time I'd watched it in a while. 
although the I love the movie, I hadn't seen it in a while. Uh, and I was looking at the the Caesar character. I'm like, that's Andy Serkis's face with makeup, right? Like, I know people say that to, uh, you know, prove that CGI is so good, but I actually thought for a second that he was just in a ape suit with me- very convincing makeup on. Yeah, I mean, it it looks like him, but it doesn't, and it does look like makeup. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's pretty incredible. And and for them to be able to keep your, you know, he's the front of the poster and you see him most of the movie and you interact s- such close up shots of all these apes and gorillas that, you know, if they didn't look as good as they do, it could be distracting, but it really is not. If anything, it, it adds to it. Like you said, they look like suits, like it gives that feeling of the original. Um, the next, I kind of wanted to talk about some of your favorite scenes. So what are, what are some of your favorite scenes from this movie? So I remember watching this movie for the first time and being hooked right out of the gate. You know, yeah. I just come up of Don and fortunately I didn't have to wait three years to see the, the next <laughs> chapter. It was more like 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, the, the scene where you have the, the, the first real confrontation between Caesar and the Colonel up in his uh, quarters. That scene gave me the chills. Um, Just to see, I think that's probably my favorite uh, Andy Serkis moment. Like he's done a lot of great work as Gollum and King Kong, and he's done a lot of these other mocap roles and on-screen roles. I enjoy him as Claw in uh, the Black Panther movie, but as far as like pure acting moment goes, that was the moment I was like, okay, get this man an award or something like that is acting right there that, you know, the, the pure emotion that he shows and Woody Harrelson isn't too shabby either. Like I had mostly known him for comedy when I saw this, not anything really uh, drama related. And I was like, this has to be his twin brother, right? This, this can't be him. The Zombie Man guy, the Hunger Games guy. Is this really him? It's him, all right. And I was floored. That was the moment when I was like, "Okay, yep, this is my favorite movie of the year." You know. Yeah, he's Instantly. such an incredible and compelling bad guy. Like, I mean, the way he's written too. I think you know, he's one of those bad guys that it's not like I think he's right but I can see how he got there and it makes him even more frightening. I think when bad guys have a rhyme and reason that kind of makes sense, they're just that much more dangerous. And this confrontation between the two of them, I mean, you know, by this point in the movie, he's wiped out his wife and one of his sons, uh, blue eyes, um, and a bunch of people or a bunch of apes. And so this is like his moment. I mean, he came all this way to confront him. That was his complete goal here. And so, yeah, this moment is just, is great because uh, the squaring off between the two of them is just awesome. And I think that he believes that his cause is, is righteous is what scares me the most about these kind of villains is that they hide and shield their motives behind some religious subtext that mm-hmm. what their cause, what they're doing, that their cause is not only justified morally, but religiously. And I just found that absolutely terrifying. I know he's not like 
outwardly, he's not one of the scariest villains you'll meet. But when you look inwardly and you you see those scenes between him and Caesar, uh, you're just like, what is this guy going to do next? Like, he seems unhinged, not only mentally, but he seems like he's going to, you know, start killing apes any minute now. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he already has, he always has you on edge, you know, waiting for what is going to happen next to these characters that we that we've grown to care about uh, for two and a half movies now. Agreed. And another dark part about him as a villain is that he has a level of clarity on the gravity of what humanity is facing that everyone else doesn't have yet. So what's kind of scary too, is that he's right in that this is going to be what wipes out the human race, essentially like at the very least it's going to make them, you know, uh, regress And at this point in the movie, you know, he and his group, they're like extremists and the U.S. government is actually after them. You know, they find out later in the film. Um, Humanity is not on Woody Harrelson's side, but he feels like, you know, this is our last stand. Like this is this is it. If if I don't kill every person that's been infected by the virus, then humanity will not continue on. And we as the audience, having seen the 1968 version, actually know that he's right. (laughs) But um, that kind of adds a level of weirdness to it too, because it's like the rest of humanity is like, we couldn't do that. But it's like, it literally, this will happen. And he is actually right. But like you said, the way he gets there, the justification, being able to, without hesitation, eliminate his son. And even that level of being like, well, you know, he was uh, not useful anymore because he regressed and can't speak. I mean, that's terrible. That just sounds, that's awful. You know, that's just genocide. Um, So yeah, all that stuff makes it super dark. And to be honest, today I was watching like a clip that was just explaining uh, the, I think it's called the simian flu in the movies. Um, It was just talking about that specific aspect of these films. And it was giving me kind of weird vibes because (laughs) uh, they played a clip from one of the films that was like, stay home. You know, if you're not feeling well, stay home. Don't spread the virus. And I was like, Oh God, like, I don't know if I should be watching this clip right now. (laughs) Um, But it's also such a brilliant way to explain what happens in the 68 film. And then of course, I don't want to jump too far ahead. So I'll just say this, the twist towards the end of this movie, I freaking love with Woody Harrelson's character, but we'll get there, I'm sure. So just wanted to get that in. (laughs) Yeah, just one more thing about that scene. Um, The way he uh, says uh, everything about how he came to know about the virus's true nature. You know, first my son stopped talking, then the, the doctor that treated him stopped talking, and then the guy that theorized this hypothesis stopped talking. Just as he keeps going, it's like, oh no, how many men did he kill? You know, right? How, how many? What has he done? You know, what is the full extent of his villainy? Uh, and even more so, uh, I wrote this line down, but he has this kind of moment where he's scared because this virus is not killing them, but by quote robbing them of the things that make them humans. And I found that statement very powerful because he delivers it so well, but kind of ironic that he views intelligence and 
you know, quote, higher thinking as what makes human human when you have these apes over here that show true humanity through real empathy. I thought that kind of unspoken irony just made him even more engaging as a character. A hundred percent. And like you, like you're saying, number one, it's flawed logic because by that logic, he should be treating the apes like humans and treating some of the humans as less than, but then also it's dark because I think it mirrors some of our own history of people feeling empowered to subjugate others or kill others by putting them in a category that makes them less than themselves and elevating themselves and the qualities that they they feel that they have as superior. Um, everything about that is messed up. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. terrible. Everything yeah. about, you know, all the derogatory names that they have for the apes, you know, King Kong is repeated, you know, the apes that work with them or work under them are called donkeys. Just they do everything they can to belittle this uh, coexisting race that's just trying to live to survive, really. It's just horrifying to watch. And that he, you know, tells his old methodology in front of one of the main soldiers in the film. And the soldier is phased by it, but doesn't do anything because he, he knows what he will do if he acts in a way that the, that the colonel uh, doesn't approve of. You know, it just shows the amount of control he has over his men. Right. It's, and it's yeah, amazing. I think ultimately his he acts like he's got this really noble reason saving the human race. But ultimately, it does feel like it's all about him and his control over people more than it is about anything else like at least for most of the film he's enjoying just being at the very top and you know i think there's a lot of like you said labels in the film like like you said the donkeys or gorillas just ways to label um different groups so that they then become other and that you don't have to empathize or you know for lack of a better term i know they're apes but humanize them (laughs) yeah yeah and uh gosh i had a thought here um, one more thing about that scene is, uh, how he, I guess if you want to think about it, uh, in a slightly more humorous way, um, you brought up how it, how the whole flu virus thing feels scarily real. Um, his obsession with burning everything, um, kind of makes him the ultimate germaphobe. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about that. It's kind yeah. of like he's vaguely aware of how it spreads. And so that is probably part of why he does burns everything because he thinks, and it kind of doesn't give you sort of like the thing vibes a little bit too, <laughs> like burning stuff as a method of getting rid of whatever it is that's spreading. Yeah. And I guess you could look at him as like the extreme version of what we see today. You know, people scared of the, the virus, you know, he's like the, the worst you can get. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you can't, you, you'd have to do some pretty dark stuff to hit, hit that level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that I really like in the movie is the introduction of the little girl character, uh, Nova. Um, yeah. When, you know, the way that they set it up is perfect. It's sort of a, it's different than the 1968 film. You know, in that one, there's sort of like a love interest and she's mute and stuff. In this case, uh, you know, 
Caesar just lost his family and he's just, I mean, the rage and the revenge, you know, this, that's just taken over and he's starting to become brutal in a way that he wasn't in previous films. And, you know, he happens upon a soldier who tells him like, I'm going to put the gun down and, and he just shoots him um, and kills him. And the other apes kind of react to that. They're kind of like, uh, this isn't how you normally operate. Like that was weird. And then they go into the house and he goes in there like, you know, guns blazing. He's ready to take more people out. He's just hurt and angry and in pain. And then he sees the little girl. And I think it like, I like the way they did that. Cause I think it really, it really sets in for him that like, th- this was bad. Like he killed this child's father essentially. And um he you know as a parent himself it really touches him and then they end up taking this little girl with them and she is like the first sign that you know people can't speak right i think she's like the first human we encounter that can't talk i think that's correct and what's interesting about her introduction is that um caesar you're right he's he's ready to go in there guns are blazing you know, ready to tear the place apart and get whatever he needs to continue on his mission. And then he finds the little girl and he looks at her. You kind of see on his face his uh, uh, disgust in himself at killing, you know, his father, caretaker, whoever it was that was helping her. Uh, and he kind of just brushes her aside because he is so consumed by hate. And then you have Maurice, the orangutan, mm-hmm. who really takes to her. And I don't know if this is maybe because he did so well in Don, but I feel like if Matt Reeves, like if this is, if this was his only apes film, I don't know that some of the interactions that some of the apes have with Nova would have actually made it to the final cut. Um, When you think about it, that they're actually really essential to the story, but you can kind of see like some studios that exec going, maybe trim these sequences down. Um, and yeah, I think that would have been a mistake uh, that because those uh, moments humanize the characters that we already know uh, and they go and show who she is as a person you, who's just really innocent and really trying to make sense of things that really don't make sense. Uh, but you added an interesting point in that uh, when Caesar sees her, uh, sorry, when Caesar Caesar, um, she kind of <laughs> reacts to him uh, in a scared way. Uh, but I think she really takes to him, even though he's not really the most approachable character. And what I like about yeah. this scene most is that right after she's introduced, they bring her with her. Um, there's that small moment where he's trying to drink water. He's nervous because Nova is right next to her. Uh, and the fact that he realizes he just killed the caretaker or her father, um, kind of, he sees that disgust in himself and looks at her as kind of like the representation of his humanity. And after that moment, he gets nervous. And then that's the first hallucination he has of Koba, uh, the ape from the last film that he killed. Right. Uh, I like how that all ties together. It all connects it's very tight for like a two and a half hour movie 
I agree. And Nova kind of represents Caesar when we met him in the first movie, because he went from being a regular ape to gaining this level of intelligence. And at the beginning of that movie, even when he's very intelligent, he's extremely innocent. He doesn't understand why humans don't like him. And he evolves into who he is at the end of this movie. And I think she kind of represents where he started. And I think some of the apes that like at this point in the story, like all the apes started as regular apes and then they, you know, they haven't, they're not like second generation apes with that level of intelligence They They remember um, a before. And so I think maybe that makes them more sympathetic to Nova who is now kind of in their place, you know? And so they're kind of like, how can I be cruel to somebody who is so innocent and so, you know, naive when, that that was me not too long ago, you know? Yeah, and that he he really does try to understand where the other apes are coming from as far as, like, their, their attachment to her. Uh, but I think you really see that relationship between them grow uh, throughout the film, especially in that one scene where she kind of sneaks into the camp and uh, feeds Caesar and gives him water uh, oh, yeah. and really becomes, you know, in his favor, not only in his favor, but he kind of takes her on as like uh, a, a child of his own. Uh, you kind of sound... see that connection. <laughs> oh, for sure. I'm going to sound like one of my guests that I've had on here before, but th- there's some, you know, pretty obvious uh, Bible analogies in this one. Uh, you know, Caesar's a lot like Moses leading uh, his people away from the oppressors. Um, but also I think in that scene where she brings him that water and food, it's sort of like a Christ analogy a little bit too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Also there's uh, like hints of Spartacus throughout this film. Oh, for uh, sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of like history, religion. I mean, you know, uh, things that we can relate to. And I, and I completely agree with what you were saying about Nova being sort of like the vehicle that the audience is able to more deeply empathize with the apes. And, you know, maybe uh, Matt Reeves and his team were like, hey, we've got to figure out a way to make sure that, yes, this movie is going to, we're going to end up at the very end being empathetic and close to the apes and we're championing their struggle, not the humans. Uh, but I think that Nova is a good way to, she's our in because the way that they view her kind of makes it to where it's like, they're not necessarily mad at all humans as a whole. They're mad at the humans that they're fighting but they can sort of imagine a future where they're not angry at humans because of the Nova character. (laughs) Yeah, you're right about the whole uh, viewpoint for the audience, because I think if you don't have a character uh, that has any redeemable qualities, I mean, who are you going to root for the, the people that put apes into camps and, uh, you know, stand in uh, formation as they listen to the national anthem being played or this little girl, who you very much uh, seems like a child who mm-hmm. also conveys a sense of maturity that I think on a deeper level, the apes kind of respect this, particularly the Maurice character. Yeah. And her emotional capacity, even though she's maybe, you know, somewhat regressed as they keep saying we don't really know what level that is we just know she can't speak 
Um, but you know, it's implied in the movie that it's not just them being able to speak. And I think that goes back to, I think the first movie, because, you know, the whole point of creating that, um, this cure was to help somebody with Alzheimer's. And so I guess the virus has mutated to a point where it's sort of doing that to people, like giving them that permanently. And, um, you know, that's causing them to have mental decline, not just not be able to talk, which would not be a, necessarily a sign, right? Um, yeah. But with her, even though she has this quote-unquote decline, um, she has the emotional maturity and ability that it seems like the regular humans lack. So, yeah, I think that that's what they really respect about her, especially that scene where, uh, Mar- uh, not Maurice, but was it Rocket? Who, who which uh, he passes Luca? away. Luca, that's right. Okay, thank you. Um, when Luca passes away, you know, Luca had given her those flowers and her hair, and then later she in turns puts them on him and cries. And I like the way that Caesar looks at her when she's crying because he sees that she's truly feeling grief for Luca. She really had a connection uh, with that ape. So, yeah, I think that's he's like, okay, like some people are good. And then ironically, you know, the other humans are labeling these people as like, less than and yet they seem to have more empathy than they do so in some ways like they're more advanced and like the regular people it's almost like the more intelligent you are the less empathetic you are or something you know yeah it's interesting that you bring that up because these movies have always been like a reflection of like humanity and their overconfidence you know this whole Mm -hmm. idea that uh this disease is carried about because of man's own ignorance to cure what can't be cured ironically ends up you know, being a, a, another ultimate disease uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, right. Even those who didn't ask for it are affected by it. Uh, and it's, I guess, I don't know. I haven't seen these other movies, the the older movies, but I wonder if there's something in them where you kind of see uh, a more human point of view. I always kind of wonder, like, if there was a movie in the series that focused on humans and as they were, in the midst of this all breaking out. Uh, I guess we don't need it because we're living in it, but (laughs) (laughs) it feels like we are. Um, But uh, I guess from a character standpoint, like it's interesting to see these uh, people react to it. You don't see that much here. Not that that's a slight against the film, but uh, I mean, considering they're all military soldiers, they're not supposed to show emotion. In fact, there's, multiple banners throughout this film of like show courage, not fear, keep it to yourself, you know, know, Mm -hmm. trying to suppress emotion. They're basically like, you know, Vulcans, angry Vulcans. Yeah. They're trying not to experience the gravity of what's actually happening and only focus on their mission. And I think also that makes it easier for us to distance ourselves from the humans in the film, because it's like, it's kind of like, you know, like in sci-fi movies or like star Wars or something where, you know, all, you see a bunch of people get shot, but you're like, eh, cause they're like all wearing like stormtrooper outfits. You know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah. that where it's like that uniform creates a little bit of distance, I think. Um, cause they're not all just like regular people. They're like, you know, they're all armed, they're trained and they're like you said, not showing any emotion. So, um, I think yeah, that, that allows matter. distance. Yeah. Yeah. It almost doesn't matter who they are. Like whether you, you know, even see their face or not. They're just so committed to a cause that is so not right. But the fact 
but again, the fact that they believe it in it so much, or at least mm -hmm. are forced to believe in it, are very scary ideas indeed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's another scene that you like? I feel like I kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> oh, no problem. Uh, I guess uh, the... I mentioned the scene where uh, Caesar gets food and water from Nova. Mm -hmm. um, that scene kind of like, that was another moment where I was like, yeah, this is, yeah, I'm definitely enjoying this. Also, it's interesting to that you bring up the kind of Christ similarities because I think you're onto something there. Uh, even in his introduction in this film, you have him passing through the wounded and the the deceased in his introduction and they're like wanting to touch his hand. Uh, yes. There's a lot of that, the religious context. Also that you bring up Moses when, you know, Charlton Heston played Moses once, it all ties together. <laughs> it does. And also like the avalanche scene is sort of like the parting of the Red Sea because it's like, you know, that was like in, in the Bible, that's like an act of God. But in this movie, he, you know, sets off that, uh, you know, oil thing or whatever and it explodes so in some ways he made that happen but in another way it's kind of like it looks like nature coming for them like it all it, it puts them in a position of being like the good guys you know like sort of like god or something is intervening and saving them almost at yeah. least it, visually it kind of looks like that and i can't claim all the credit for that i was watching some videos that were explaining that too um but Definitely picked up on some of that even before I watched it. But it, if you have the time to go back and like, you know, watch some kind of deep dives, they'll like point out a lot of parallels. And I'm like, yeah, I can totally see that. And it sort of like creates this mystique around Caesar that it feels like after he's gone, he will sort of be like a, you know, like there'll be some sort of story written about, you know, their deliverance and, uh, and the significance that he played and how he becomes by the end, almost like, I mean, just a mythical person, you know, <laughs> like he just becomes yeah. so important by the end. And people, like you said, are, or apes are like awed by his presence um, and look to him for every single decision. Yeah. I'll, again, that you bring up the avalanche one. I'm sorry. I kind of piggybacking off your thoughts, but no, go for it. I always interpreted that, you know, last destruction, as a result of their own folly, you know? True. Uh, I think during the, the battle, you see a lot of helicopters and what have you crashing into the mountainside. Uh, I think that played a part in that. And I think the, the gas explosion was the last thing that set it off. But you can't really blame Caesar for it because mm. there wouldn't need a uh, uh, need for a gas explosion if there wasn't a war going on. That's true. Uh, so it's truly like, you know, and earlier in the film, Woody Harrelson mentions that, like, he goes, well, who, I think Caesar says, like, who's coming? Like, you know, it occurs to him, like, oh, this is like, I'm in the middle of, like, their war. Like, I think we're just fighting them, but actually they're fighting someone else. Um, and he's like, everybody. So it, like, wipes pretty much maybe the whole human race out <laughs> in that scene. Yeah. Like, it is truly the end of humanity um towards the end and you're right it is you know you can point to a couple things that caesar played a part in but really it's like the problem kind of took care of itself like people just yeah. self-destructed to the point where they were free 
yeah, I remember the thought I had, you know, watching this again was like, okay, so after this you know, avalanche passes over them, how many humans are left? Kind of make you wonder, like, yeah, I guess that's the point because of where we end up in, in the 68 film where they're very sparse. They're very, they're very much spread throughout the globe. They're very, they're not as prevalent as they once were. Uh, right. And, and I don't know what the timeline is like, you know, how soon after this would that be? Or, you know, uh, like, in other words, um, are they like second, third generation of people that have no idea that that happened? Or, you know what I mean? I think it's closer because uh, Caesar's second son is Cornelius and Cornelius is a character in the 68 film. My and that you one. have no... Uh, <laughs> Although I don't like the idea that Nova, this little girl, goes into the the Nova from the '68 film, they they seem like two different characters in my mind, at least. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more of maybe like an Easter egg, but yeah. I think you're right about the timeline because I saw another like sort of you know explanation that I forgot about. But in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, there's like a uh, newspaper and then I think there's also like a news broadcast that talks about the mission uh, to Mars that starts the 68 film yeah so and that's that it can't be too much longer after this one then yeah I'd have to go back and see the film but I think they kind of date how long the journey was gonna last ah. for uh, so perhaps if, like, I'll go back and find out what the exact date was but i think they said like something 60 50 years maybe i don't know so maybe enough for like possibly another generation but not too far into the future okay yeah because rice yeah. is like the opening of that film starts in present day uh, mm -hmm. and then passes like five years later and then another 10 go by and dawn and then this is like wars like um i think another six years or maybe shorter. I forget like the, the, the timeline of it all, but maybe that's kind of feasible that they, they come in soon after like the apes settle in their new homeland. That uh, wouldn't be unreasonable thought. I actually yeah. wonder if this journey actually takes longer than um, the film kind of plays it up. Cause the, the film, the way the timeline works is that it feels like it's a couple of days, but perhaps this was like a month long journey to find the colonel. I mean, it certainly could Would you say four way. days? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't know. And also, the only thing I don't like about the mission taking off in Rise is then it, it would be less of a twist to that person, right? Because by that time, aren't the apes becoming intelligent and gathering? Or yeah, did I, they take off before that? I can't remember. I'd have to go back and watch it. Yeah. I, I mean... Personally, it kind of, the, the principle that this all leads into it, you know, and the very premise that this is like apes starting the rise kind of spoils it. But mm -hmm. that yeah. is an interesting point. <laughs> yeah. I guess that that's coming from my point of view, because even sight unseen, the, the original film, I knew that it was like present day because I was around to see the marketing for these series of films. And so... I think that in itself is just one of those things that gets spoiled over time Absolutely. by the only films. I mean, if if not that way, then by the endless parodies, you know, of that oh, film. Yeah. Um, and ironically, 
most of the greatest twists I learned from seeing parodies of them. Oh, for sure. Especially like on the Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm thinking, I'm sure there's a Simpsons episode. I feel like I remember one uh, for this one too, but yeah, it's like, it, it's hard to be shocked at the end, but I think somehow, I think that I knew how it ended when I f- saw the original one, the 68 one, but it had been long enough and I hadn't really been thinking about it enough to where even though I wasn't like surprised at the end, it still felt fairly satisfying, but yeah, especially with these movies too. It's like, I don't, I don't think anybody can be <laughs> surprised by that ending anymore. Um, I, I guess yeah. that's kind of good in a way uh, because it forces them to look at how it all leads up to the twist, you know, yes. whether the rest of the movie kind of supports that. Mm-hmm. Um, so although like, you know, I, I didn't have the opportunity to have that shock value. Uh, it did enable me to like, okay, how does the rest of the movie kind of build up to that? Does it support it? Is it coming right out of nowhere? Um, I think it does. Um, they certainly kind of don't, they, they certainly mislead you in that film by tricking you into thinking that this is some alternate planet or something. Yes. Yeah. That they're on. Very true. Uh, but I guess back to, back to this one. I wanted to mention the bad ape character. Oh uh, yes, I love him. Steve um, Zahn. I, I find it interesting that they have the bad ape character who it, it be the most articulate out of all the apes. Uh, even Caesar, I think. I think he has more lines than even Caesar. Or if not more lines, he certainly can put sentences together and speaks more often than, than he does. I love this edition of this character, and I had read that people asked about in the first one, like, are there some apes that, you know, have learned how to speak and are not maybe necessarily part of this crew, um, are in different parts of the world? And this this sort of answers that question. And I think that Bad Ape is more articulate because he's been around humans more. Yeah. You know, he says I think that they... he listens, and that's how he learned English. Yeah, I think that's also how he got his name. You know, the, the humans call him Bad Ape, Bad Ape. He eventually believes that's his name, which is yeah, actually kind of tragic when you think <laughs> about it. But it kind of makes it that much important that he turns out to be the comedic comedic relief of the film. Right. And, and like, and, he, oh, yeah. go ahead, sorry. Oh, um, I just think that the fact that he's like comedic relief doesn't really take away from any of the, the somber stuff in that film. Cause this film gets dark. Like, Oh, for sure. You know, the, the, the scene before Caesar gets captured where he's like walking by all these, I want to, I called them ape scarecrows, but they got all these dead or near dead apes hanging on these wooden crosses in the freezing cold. Just like, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course all the, the, seeing what this virus is doing to humanity they don't shy away from that either the 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 men that they encounter on the road that are shot um i think that is kind of grisly for this kind of film uh but i like how bad ape comes into play by like being this comedic relief and the fact that his name comes from a place of mockery just shows an unspoken amount of character to this escape that even though he he may be mocked he he may knew he was being mocked he may not have realized he was being mocked uh but he's the comedic relief nonetheless and i 
I think there's something important by that notion. Yeah, I think, you know, the choice to make, uh, to cast Steve Zahn, who is predominantly in funny stuff, you know, or in like kind of quirky stuff, like I specifically remember him from Joyride. That's not a great movie or anything, but it's just what I remember him the most yeah. from. But yeah, um, I... yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that he, the bad Abe character, I think is more articulate because Caesar, like, he was treated like an ape. And I think when he's taught words, it's like giving him one word at a time very slowly. And then he's distant from humans. And most of the apes don't, or the apes at this point don't speak, just he speaks. So he doesn't really get a lot of chance to like use words um, only when he's addressing humans. But bad ape has sort of been in the shadows. He learns from listening to them, but he's not like being taught by them. So he speaks the way they do. And he's also like the first ape to like wear clothes too, because he wears like a full set of clothes again, because he's mimicking humans. He's not around apes. He's around humans. So he's doing what they're doing. Um, And yet it makes sense. Like when you think about how, I don't know, it makes me feel bad for animals actually in general, because it's like he latches onto the words bad ape as his name because they call him that and i'm like oh <laughs> makes me think about like my pets like if i say no to to them too much do they think their nickname is no <laughs> yeah um, but yeah i i think he's such a i don't know he, he has some really poignant scenes where i don't know i just get really sad when he's on screen sometimes but then other times he's very funny like you said yeah it's interesting that you bring up the no 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 thing because that's what he says a lot to Nova, you know, don't touch oh, that. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, kind of interesting. And of course that kind of is the start of him kind of annoying Maurice to the point where, you know, Maurice gets up and, you know, growls or yells at him in a humorous <laughs> moment. Uh, it's kind of like this building up to this punchline that you don't even realize is coming. But if you look at like where it's set up, it's there all a lot, you know, you can see uh, in, wide shots you know maurice kind of be like really dude what are you doing to to that ape Um, (laughs) i think the relationship to on all these apes is kind of interesting the dynamic that they have of course Mm -hmm. some of them have known each other since the very beginning of this whole story uh but when you add new new characters it just it's interesting to see how the group functions uh the more that you add to it yeah Um, yeah exactly and also the cost of Caesar's agenda and decisions, I think too, in the film, because, you know, his actions lead directly towards a lot of the stuff that happens. You know, he separates from the main group to go on this quest for revenge and he takes some people with them. It results in Luca getting killed. And then towards the end of the film, he finds out all of his people are rounded up again and they're in the encampment. So in a way, this stuff all relates to actions that he took they have a really big impact on everybody else. Yeah. So generally this, this film was kind of like widely well-received, you know, very little people uh, disliked it, but I did some reading and a lot of people didn't like the the basis of the story and that it's Caesar going out for revenge is like the stupidest thing ever. Uh, (laughs) I kind of, I kind of reject that criticism a little bit because if you're actually watching the movie, his, viewpoint is really justified i mean did you see the corpses of his wife and son did you see were you watching this like i i don't mean to be rude but like you watch this film you and you 
sit and pay attention, you are instantly in his uh, point of view. You're in his shoes or I, I don't think he wears shoes. Uh, <laughs> I digress. Uh, but it really does make you feel for this guy, you know, and the fact that he is someone who, you know, his affinity for humans is hanging by a thread that anything can set him off, uh, that it's done in that specific way, uh, where you see the, 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 the wife and who, by the way, I actually didn't know this before, uh, looking it up, but, uh, the actress who plays, uh, Cornelia, his wife is Judy Greer. Yeah, I, did I didn't realize that. that either. Uh, but anyway, uh, short row, but I think she did really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the, the, the character journey of someone who grew up with humans and so kind of has this insider point of view, this point of view that someone who may not have had such a positive relationship with humans might have, uh, to see him get to this point where even he himself is questioning his better half of like, you know, he spares the soldiers, despite the fact that these soldiers, the fact that he spares them come, comes back to bite him in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that he gives the humans so many chances to do the right thing and doesn't. Um, you absolutely do kind of get behind his reasoning, even though you don't want to see him go down this uh, path that is very similar to his uh, deceased rival. Uh, speaks to the the power of this character that he has this kind of influence over you. Yeah, I mean, and this film yeah, makes totally you cry agree. about apes a lot, and I think <laughs> that does. means something. Yeah, and yeah. I think too, it's supposed to sort of, in some ways, mirror that the ultimate trajectory of the apes is that they become like what they hate because, you know, he starts off extremely you know, pacifist and a peacemaker. And, you know, he even took out his friend in the last film in order to pursue peace uh, with the humans. And then all it takes is for a deep connection near him to derail that almost like it's ingrained that this sort of propensity for violence, which I feel like is a lot in these movies about, you know, I think human nature and, you know, the things that we do and what motivates us ultimately end up being what motivates the apes as well. Um, and why these cycles sort of keep continuing or that that's kind of how I read that part. So I, I think the, the movie doesn't work if he doesn't have that weakness where he goes for revenge, because I, I think that's just such a big part of the, the story. You, you have to have that part. So yeah, I would never think that that seemed silly. Like it just seems logical. That was his family that got slaughtered. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up his lack of knowledge behind uh, his namesake, uh, because certain aspects of the story are kind of like the Julius Caesar story, where yeah. he's betrayed by one of one close to him, uh, and that may not have killed him, but it killed his loved ones certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though this isn't a direct kind of uh, adaptation of that story, even though he does die in the end, it's kind of like a, a variant. He he dies doing the right thing. Whereas I, I, I'm not, I'm not a Caesar expert. I don't know a lot about it. I know the general story. If you were to ask me for details, I couldn't tell you them. Uh, but there are aspects of that uh, figure in this character, and I thought that was an interesting choice to carry on. In the way, if you know that, it kind of makes the thing predictable. Some aspects, but 
Uh, for me, mm -hmm. I didn't make that connection until uh, much later after seeing the films. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think you're definitely onto something there for sure. Um, I mean, he's a leader and Caesar was a leader. Like there's a lot of parallels too, uh, besides even that scene, but I agree. Um, can we talk a little bit about the twist with Woody Harrelson's character? Yes. Uh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I can edit all this out. <laughs> um, so Woody Harrelson's character, um, you know, he had this big justification for, uh, you know, killing his son and for his cause and everything like that. And then ironically, when he torments Caesar and, uh, you know, Nova comes and brings him water and food, uh, she leaves the little doll behind. And I guess touching that doll ends up giving him the virus. And so when uh, Caesar and him have that big standoff, he realizes he can't talk. And he has this really, you know, intense moment where he's trying to decide, like, am I going to shoot this guy um, or not? And he ultimately decides, you know what? I'm going to let him shoot himself because I know that's what he's going to do. Uh, by his own logic, he has to die. And that's how Woody Harrelson's character ends. And I think it is freaking perfect. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> this this is probably the, the scene in the movie where I was like, okay, so the colonel's been absent for a while. Uh, you kind of notice it as they're planning the escape. Like, you're thinking, where's the colonel mm -hmm. in all this? Uh, so I like how they slowly build up to that. Uh, and the fact that he does pick up the doll, that he yes. uh, is short-sighted enough to miss that it connects beautifully to the rest of the film where humanity destroys itself. These films, they connect very much uh, to each other as they are strong individually. They all mm -hmm. are about this one theme and they all carry over. This is kind of like the, the final nail in this story of humanity that, you know, even someone like the Colonel uh, would be so um, short-sighted to do something like that. Right. Uh, he was, I mean, he's probably was maybe assuming that that doll was an ape's doll or something, you know, like not really thinking that through. And his obsession with controlling and using the apes is what made that situation even happen. If he hadn't done that, then he wouldn't have come in contact with that doll. And it's also interesting that he was able to distance himself from the disease with his own son. And still in this moment, this happens. So just poetic justice <laughs> for sure yeah and the best part of that moment is that you don't really know caesar's motive like is he mm -hmm. letting the guy kill himself because he doesn't want to do it is he was he intending for him to live on in this def uh, not deformed de-evolved state yeah. um, or is it a bit of both is he did he did he want him to shoot himself or was it, it, it's interesting, this unspoken motivation that lies throughout the character throughout this film, certain things that he does, sometimes you can point out, oh, that's because of its empathy, that's his empathy talking, or that's his struggle with that empathy that's controlling him. Uh, there are certain segments in this movie where you don't know why he pulls the trigger, whether it's because he's being empathetic, whether he's losing his empathy, or maybe if it's a bit of both. Yeah, I, I almost felt in that scene like part of it could be 
this is the ultimate way he shows he really is better than him because he has this moment for sweet revenge and he's like actually the best revenge is to not do this <laughs> you know yeah. so it's like you said it could really go either way or is it like i'm not like you i'm empathetic like you're saying like it could be so many different things maybe it's a little bit of all those things yeah i think it's just such a great uh it's just such a great ending for that villain too so just all of that i just really enjoy yeah and the colonel seems to like want him to kill him in the end he seems to like i don't know if those were the exact uh motions that he was doing but it seemed to me like he was wanting that kind of release uh but that he doesn't do it yeah you could make the argument that if he did it he was acting out of mercy uh but that they don't do that True. kind of speaks to this dual uh motivation behind the character that is kind i think of for sure oh sorry no yeah. go ahead I think Woody Harrelson wanted to die as what he considered a human. Um, and if he goads Caesar into killing him, he gets to have that. But by Caesar not pulling the trigger, then he has to kill himself before he's quote unquote, not human by his own standards, you know? Yeah. And you, you see kind of like the, the reaction that he has to it. He's just like, he's, not surprised by it but he's also like wow like when it comes to this guy you know all talk and no show for it he's just like all the others you know until mm -hmm. the very end he's, he, he, he can be he can be the most strong you know most disciplined guy but yet still you know regress not only physically but like emotionally mentally too and maybe that could be the virus talking, but I like to think that's the that's the the character uh, itself, his own regression, uh, not by anything the virus is doing to him, but uh, his own doing. Yeah, and also sort of an acknowledgement, like, "Hey, we lost." <laughs> like in general, I mean, if he has it, then everyone around him is going to have it too, and maybe he also doesn't want to stick around and see that, you know? Yeah, and. You know, he talks a lot about what will happen when it does become, you know, Planet of Apes. Uh, he doesn't want to be around to where the roles are reversed. Exactly. Although, <laughs> when you look at, at these films as a whole, they kind of do reflect a circle of life scenario mm -hmm. where the apes come into being or they, they come into their intelligence. Humanity doesn't believe them. They try to wipe them out, but the apes ultimately prevail. And then you go to the 68 film where it's like uh, the apes are supreme. The humans come in, come back and it, the same thing plays out, but it's basically in reverse. Yes. Uh, yeah. Although you don't see that kind of same scenario for the humans as you do for the apes in these movies. I guess every, uh, every, you know, uh, species that has the upper hand in the cycle, ultimately their belief that, the other species is below them is what plays directly into their downfall. Um, whether that be the humans or the apes. Yeah. And that kind of, it's a lot of little things throughout this film that I kind of, why do I love it so much? You, know, yeah. you see in all areas of the characters, how they interact with each other, the story, how that connects to the characters and even like background things that you wouldn't even notice. Like, it could be like a CG artist doing something with one of the characters, animate them, 
or in a specific way. Uh, or even the actors themselves, their emotions, they feel very human. They feel very like us. The, just the many ways that they get us to root for these characters, I think is the ultimate surprise of this film, that you'd be so caring about someone who you kind of see yourself in, but are definitely like a fictionalized version of that. Yeah. Um, and it I ends just, on a happy note, at least for the apes, they reach the promised land, which looks a lot like the 1968 film, like the setting being a desert and stuff. It kind of looks more like what we see in that film. And that's where the, they're like safe. And of course, Caesar doesn't make it to the promised land. He doesn't, he's dying and he doesn't tell any of the other apes that he's mortally wounded, but I think him dying sort of plays into like the whole like mystifying his existence towards the end because, you know, his ultimate goal was to get his people to safety. He achieves that. But by dying, he becomes an even more like mythical religious type figure. Yeah. And the impact that uh, he has on the apes is definitely felt mm -hmm. considering that the last line or I guess second to last line is like, you know, your son will know who was his father and what Caesar did and what he means for all of us. Uh, kind of the legacy that is instilled in the final moments of this character and film overall, uh, it's kind of like reflects like the real life situation of like this, this character um, very much is had, had a great impact on me, at least in the way I got to invest with him. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's 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 like the filmmaker is speaking through the characters um, in a way, and yeah. I guess that's true of all films. Uh, the way the dialogue is, they they come up with it. And so, although the actors say it, it's basically they're the filmmaker saying it to you, um, which mm -hmm. is another way another good way point. of looking at it. And uh, if I, I may, yeah. um, I, I know this is slightly coming to spoilers for other films. Uh, but can I mention how three films from 2017 uh, had similar endings for their long-running characters? Yes, uh, you go for it. You had The Last Jedi and you had Logan. Uh, and if you, uh, without getting too much into it, uh, the way all three of those characters, so you have uh, Caesar, you have Luke, you have Logan from that film, they kind of follow similar journeys. I, I found that kind of funny. Maybe I wouldn't oh. have thought of that <laughs> if I hadn't seen those films recently. Uh, but I did kind of find it funny that, you know, in the same year, in 2017, we lost three uh, popular characters, all in similar ways, doing similarly heroic things. Yeah. Man, I guess the, really the Logan point. connection makes sense because it's both, both films were by Fox, but the others mm -hmm. by Disney. Wait, hold on. And then the year later, Disney bought Fox. Maybe this all was just the Disney involvement was all longer <laughs> before it became public. <laughs> well, I've never thought time. of that. But I do think that in movie years, it feels like there's like a tone, like a collective consciousness theme. Like, you know how for a while, like every movie had that beam coming out of the sky, destroying everything. It, yeah. it feels a little like that. Like that was just like a in the collective consciousness somehow and found its way into these really popular films. But I agree. There's definitely a connection there. It's um, like, you know, the back in the nineties when they had, you know, 
Armageddon and Deep Impact, and they're very much about <laughs> yeah. the same things. Yes, very much so. Man, that's I'm going to be thinking about that now. That's that's so true. Um, <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. I probably may have ruined that for some. No, no, I don't think so. I feel like there's been enough time. Um, yeah. Also, it's when Maurice finally speaks, and I think he's sort of taking on the baton from uh, from Caesar. And it shows the evolution of the apes, too, because I feel like, you know, for a long time, Caesar was talking. The other apes were not except for Bad Ape. Um, but as he's dying, he speaks to him um, in, in you know, using human language. And it, it sort of implies that he's going to, you know, not only teach everybody about uh, Caesar and, and where he came from, but also teach them to speak. It feels like that's the next step for them. Yeah. And just that. So the way that they wrap it up, it's it's a sad ending for the guy. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's like happy tears. You're you're happy to see mm -hmm. that this is where he ends. Um, considering everything that's come before, it just feels so right that he the that his journey would end here. Although in a way, his journey lives on, you know, through those right. around him. You know, like like the real Caesar, I guess, in a way. You know, he. He lives on through the people that he interacted with. Although, I don't know. Again, I don't know much about Julius Caesar, but uh, I'm sure that this this fictional Caesar probably lives on in a lot more positive light. Uh, just that he inspired through his heroism and acts of selflessness. And the strongest part is that he overcame. And he, in the end, he overcame. He openly admitted his struggle with his own humanity and morality but he, he came through in the end. And I think that's mm -hmm. the, the real strength of this character is that he, he, he represents us through those moral struggles that we have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too, maybe I'm reaching. No, I, much, I agree. He, he represents the better parts of us. He's a hero. Yeah, he, he's a very much an aspirational figure there. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, did we miss any other scenes that you still wanted to, to cover? Um, I guess just like uh, throw out of some of my favorite Andy Circus moments. Like he sure. really like knocked it out of the park with this movie. It's like every scene he's in is like golden. Uh, but one of the earlier scenes in the film where he confronts the traitor ape, I think his name was Winter, and mm -hmm. he slowly reveals unto him like what he what the ape did by uh, turning his back on people like you know, my wife. My son are dead. Just that intensity yes. uh, that he has, and yet he doesn't. He he's very much reserved in it. He, he's not like yelling at. Of course, he can't yell because you know people are nearby. But that he keeps it in just makes it even more intense. I mm -hmm. think if he were to be very open and yell outright about his anger, yeah, uh, his self control guess, is yeah. is it, it makes it scarier somehow yeah and you know circus in this film he has these moments where his character's emotions like flip instantly like yes he's despondent over the loss of his wife and son and so he hears something he's going to the action he's got this feral anger about him and then he sees his son and he ultimately just breaks down mm -hmm. uh, and the transition is so believable and you have a similar moment where uh he saves the child apes in the camp and then after everything is safe he slowly you know turns his head 
back to the colonel's quarters and his emotions flip instantly. Just that change that he's so versatile uh, is the reason why I love him as an actor so much. I think he's very much underrated. I know like for some like motion capture acting is kind of like in a category of itself. Uh, But I looked at this film and I thought like, no, everyone who is doing motion capture here is very much acting. You can see Mm -hmm. the the actor behind the role, even though it's all computer generated, the character is computer generated. Uh, The CG would be nothing without the the actor to act that out for film. Right. If anything, it's more impressive. (laughs) Yeah. If you just try to insert it, it would seem cheap. It would seem false. It would seem like it wasn't being genuine enough. Uh, that you do have these actors, these very talented actors uh, behind these characters, uh, some of whom this may have been their first time, you know, being in the motion capture scene, uh, others who are very experienced, uh, that they have this kind of uh, love of the, the form of acting, uh, despite the kind of mixed reception it may get from people. Uh, is just so sh- special to me that you kind of see that passion for all forms of acting. It actually makes me wish he did get like some form of recognition that year for his character. Seriously. Uh, I mean, I don't put much stock into awards anyway, considering like almost all the time they get, they get something wrong. So every year it's like, eh, mm-hmm. this, 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 but I don't know, like Andy Circus, considering the, amount of experience he has behind him and the amount of talent that he's proven like i think something like an academy award or something uh would have been fully warranted for his work here especially since you know his character perishes and uh so i'm told the academy really loves that stuff you know when the character when the (laughs) major character hangs up the role and dies you know i Uh hear that from a lot of credit but i guess that only applies to certain cases here yeah Uh, it feels like with sci-fi or fantasy, the Academy has always really struggled to recognize uh, those types of movies that the way that the general audience does. Um, I feel like that's starting to change a little bit, but not by much. Yeah, I mean that the, the, the this that this trilogy of films only ever really got a VFX nod uh, for mm-hmm. its entire run is kind of sad. In fact, it, it kind is. of misses the point of what these films are about. They're very much about what is underneath and not what is immediately presented. Um, it just, I don't know, disappointing. And it did, I, totally I mean, agree. I guess Blade Runner, the, the 2049 film came out the same year. And so that got a lot of technical nods, which I don't know, I wouldn't take anything away from that, but it's kind of frustrating whenever you have those two great films come out in the same year as each other. It's like, man, if there'd been any other year, I'm sure to nailed it, but uh, I guess in-house competition ultimately is what plays into it, I guess. Well, and it's similar to that movie in that it's not really a big crowd pleaser either. It's like these two incredibly well-made, amazing films that they don't really bring huge box office revenue. And that's kind of yeah. unfortunate, but just the nature of, I think, the the genre that they're in. It's just not for everybody. So it's kind of like they're the ex- yeah. absolute best at what they do, but you know, not everybody likes those kind of films. 
Yeah, I mean, this didn't bomb. I think it made like four hundred. Oh yeah, million, I think it did better than Blade Runner. <laughs> after <laughs> after Dawn, which I think made seven hundred million when it came out for its theatrical run, that kind of noticeable decline. It's not mm-hmm. a small amount less. It's like such a wide decline. It's it's kind of sad. Although I blame like the the release date of the film. It came oh. out a week after Spider Man Homecoming, and it came out a week before Dunkirk. Uh, and oh, those yeah. two films have very similar audiences. Not to yes. mention, yeah, Transformers before, and all these. You know, sometimes I wish they released these tentpole films further apart from each other. Agreed. That way, they seem more uh, special and more like event films. Mm-hmm. And it's also right. people would have give, to make decisions with their money, and it's understandable. Yeah, and it also gives an opportunity for general audiences to see them more as just like, oh thrill of the week type experiences mm-hmm. you know, to have that time to go back and really appreciate them similar to like back in the good old days with like jaws and star wars you know where they came out and were really like the only thing of their kind you know for their entire run they played months on end and everyone got back to see them again not only because it was the only thing really out that was popular but also because they were great and they were great because People saw it multiple times and appreciated something new about them each time. I almost wish we'd go back mm-hmm. to that. I guess we kind of are because like with Tenet and films like that playing, you know, for a long amount of times because of all these delays. Um, but I hope when things do go back to some semblance of normalcy that these kind of blockbuster films are more spaced out. But I guess we'd have to get past the whole, you know, the wave of delays and then the wave of new stuff in order for that to be implemented but i think that'd be a fun experiment for people to try i probably went on a tangent there but uh no you're fine that's what we do on the show made me realize that something (laughs) i agree i realize that yeah yeah and i think i misspoke at the top of this podcast i already had my podcast going i believe by the time this movie came out so i would have been seeing a lot of films in theaters so like it's weird that i didn't remember that but i think it could be because it was such a huge year I wasn't thinking about it being released at the same time or the same year as like Blade Runner and Spider-Man Homecoming. And um, so that speaks to your point. I do wish they were a little bit more spread out. So, yeah. Yeah. I think if it had come out like maybe a few weeks later, like after they had had their time to run, uh, that probably would have worked out better for the films. But mm-hmm. as is, I mean, we still got a great film yeah. you know, regardless, but uh, I guess it was just the time it'll fall that affected its box office performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, Well, this brings me to my last couple of questions then. Uh, The first question being, um, why do you like this movie so much if you had to summarize it? Like, why do you feel you've seen it so many times? I guess I've seen it so many times because, you know, I enjoy the the films that uh, go the halfway between seeming real and seeming like fantasy mm-hmm. uh it's like pendulum pendulum swing too much yeah. into reality and you're basically watching uh reality itself too much into fantasy and you don't have any grasp on real reality or something that feels tangible that feels connected to our world what this film does is it hits the midpoint where it's like a hybrid of fiction and reality where it gets you to think about real world things through fantasy means, you know, talking apes, obviously being the fantasy element in there. 
but that you see these battle of morals and a battle of wits and all these intense, very human emotions being felt throughout the film uh, in the confines of the story of apes versus man, which itself has, I guess, basis in reality. Uh, somewhat, I guess, uh, you know, apes being seen as like the closest thing to man as man uh, is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you kind of have that throughout the film consistently uh, is probably my biggest draw. The other is probably the screenwriting. I'm kind of like in this phase where I'm wanting to go into screenwriting. I'm currently in college where I'm learning to do more film production type things. And what I'm hoping to accomplish is do something like what this film does, where everything sort of connects to each other. It's not complicated, but if you're looking for those details, you'll find them that you can enjoy this on a surface level, somewhat, somewhat surface level. It does require you to think about the ethics of these characters, uh, but that you're able to enjoy it and then go back to it and kind of see how it all connects in the end. It's not like a franchise sprawling thing like, you know, the Marvel movies are and some of these other big name franchises. It's very much in its own space, uh, but that you're able to see this as its own thing with so many details that pertain to character, that pertain to story and action and effects and just the visual style, the way it's presented uh, are all appealing factors to me. I appreciate whenever a filmmaker comes along and wants to try something different. I, as I said in the opening, this is pretty much how I view it as the anti-blockbuster. Not that I dislike blockbusters. I'm like, I'm like everyone else. I enjoy a good, you know, superhero movie and what have you, but that this challenges people to think a little deeper about themselves uh, while being able to present a lot of this fantasy action that gets you caught up, but only gets you caught up because you feel so much for these characters and because you're invested. It's not something like, you know, Transformers and things like that, where you're a slave to the action, you know, you're not feeling anything because you're not invested in anything. Uh, that these films connect so so much to humans and human emotions and then proceed to tell this great tale of loss, of grief, of, of morality, of ethics, of war, of man versus nature, uh, of nature versus nurture, ideas like that. It's so layered. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very much like one of those films that you can go back and rewatch and always find something new to appreciate about it. And I know, I know you probably wanted something simple, uh, no, but that's kind of like my how I feel about film. it. Yeah, it's yeah. not a simple franchise. I think you're. I mean, I, I don't even have anything to add to that. I think that's absolutely everything you said is so true. I um, am not, you know, looking into screenwriting necessarily, but I sympathize with the fact that I gravitate towards stories like this where it's got a lot of layers and where it all connects and every little detail is sort of wrapped up um, and everything that's introduced is, you know, has a conclusion. Um, And the themes in this story, I really, I I mean, I just, when I pick different, they tend to be science fiction (laughs) or, you know, stories like this, I 
I gravitate towards them about, you know, questions about what makes us human. Why are we here? What, what about us is inevitable? What can we change? What can be made better? What will be worse? You know, all that stuff is, is fascinating. And I think when it's in the science fiction or fantasy genre, we have a little bit of distance and we're better able to really dissect these themes without them feeling a little too close to home. Um, which is kind of something you had touched on earlier as well. So yeah, I mean, I think this trilogy is underrated. Um, I think, like you said, it did well, but maybe not as well as it could have or should have uh, for a variety of reasons that we've kind of talked about. But if you haven't ever thought about, you know, watching this, I think you really need to give it, I'm leading into my next question already here, but my pitch, I guess, is that if you've kind of, stayed on the sidelines and thought, well, I didn't really like the first play of the Apes films or I didn't see it. So I, I'm just not interested. I think this series surprises you. It's got a lot of layers. It's very nuanced. It takes the things from the sixties version, which already had some really interesting themes it explored and it just expands upon them like times 10. And so I think you should definitely check it out. Even if you're not like a huge, um, I don't know, science fiction person. It's not, like you said, it's a little more grounded than some science fiction stories are. It, it might not be what they're expecting. What What do you think your pitch would be? <laughs> I'm just going on. And I on. guess, <laughs> uh, no worries. I, I like these kind of discussions because it makes you think a lot. But I guess my kind of you know, elevator pitch, if I was talking to somebody in an elevator about this, it's a sequel. So it's kind of like you already got that credibility to it, but mm -hmm. Do you want to see a film where you can be inspired and yet also shown a mirror of yourself and of people around you? Do you want to see action and great effects and a lot of visual storytelling, but also want some of the lighthearted humor? That's kind of like my pitch. Is it just a series of questions? Mm -hmm. I guess to add to my 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 thought a little bit is one last thing about this film. It inspires you to change. And I think that is what is essential to its success. It doesn't say, Hey humans, you, you suck. What you're currently doing is, you know, not right. And leave it at that. It's easy to point out a problem. It's harder to give a solution and be like, Hey, you know, you've made mistakes in the past and you may be still making mistakes. Uh, but here's how you can do better. Mm -hmm. And the way that that the film shows doing better as being more empathetic to people, to that about being human is not about your intelligence or your physical standing, but your empathy and what lies within your character yeah, uh, is what matters point. most. Wow. I love that. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dolan, where can people find you? Uh, so I run a blog uh, called Dallin the Film Fanatic. Uh, you can find me on Insta Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, at Dallin the Film Fanatic for all of them, or I think at D the Film Fanatic for Twitter. Uh, you can find my work on my personal accounts. You just search Dallin Curtis. You can find it there. Um, and I pretty much repost my stuff there. So if you you find it there, you find it there. Uh, I do like movie reviews. I do rankings from time to time. Admittedly, I'm not as active as I once was because I'm 
doing school and other things going on in my life. But uh, I do come back and uh, uh, write up a new post whenever uh, I see a movie that I really enjoy and I want to share my enthusiasm about. So follow me there. Uh, if you appreciate film like me and you're, or even if you don't appreciate film like me, uh, I think I be, I'd love to hear your kind of response to what I'm doing and uh, it, just opening up ways for discussion would be interesting. Uh, I, I, I love having talking, uh, having talks with people about film. And so that's a great place for it too. Uh, so yeah, follow, you can find me there if you're, you're interested. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and you're going to have to think about the next film that you want to bring back. You should definitely come back. Oh yeah. Well, you, approached me about this i was like oh so many good ones come to mind so yeah definitely <laughs> definitely have to come back awesome. i didn't do like a big i know in my mind i was like i'm not going to do like what am i or my favorite film uh yet i think that would be a first one but as we're talking about this maybe this is one of my favorite films i don't know <laughs> i have such a it's uh, hard passion for this one that. it feels like feels like I have 50 sometimes. Yes, I agree. I I sympathize with that for sure. Well, you know, look forward. uh, Thank you so much for coming on and look forward to having you back. Have a good one. You too. 